And another Sunday morning rolls around. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us on Wiso Weekend, WISO's weekly radio magazine. Later in the program, we'll tour a new healthcare facility in Centerville that's purpose is to help people dealing with chronic illness. We've got Culture Couch and Poor Wheels Almanac coming at you as well. Up first, this week we celebrate the best of Dayton Youth Radio and Black History Month with a story that originally aired in 2017. It's from Mark Williams and Taylor Felder from the Miami Valley School, and it's about stereotypes and prejudice. Here's Project Coordinator Basim Blunt to introduce the story. Today on Dayton Youth Radio, we observe Black History Month with a story from two teenagers about the baggage that comes from going to private school, being middle class, well-educated, and a person of color. My name is Taylor Felder. I'm 17 years old, I'm African American, and I go to the Miami Valley School. I play soccer, run track, and I'm a part of my school's a cappella group. And I'm Mark Williams. I'm 16 years old. I'm also African American. I used to go to Rosa Parks Elementary School, which was a Dayton public school. I moved to Miami Valley after my fourth grade year because my parents wanted me in a school that challenged me more academically. And we're here to talk about Oreos. Not the snack. An Oreo is a person who is black on the outside but acts white. Some examples would be the character Hillary from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Barack Obama. Junior from Blackish. It's like when people say, oh, Obama's so articulate. It's like they're shocked that a black man can speak properly. So society has this stereotype on how black people should talk and act, like saying the N-word. What's up, bro? What's up, my nigga? Or something like that. And when you don't fit into that characterization, they look at you like you're not black. Right, like how can someone sound black or sound white? When someone tells me I sound white, I hear that is speaking properly makes you white, which implies that black people are incapable or not expected to be articulate. I've mainly heard the word coming from blacks talking to other blacks, but white people say it too. But from my experience, they don't use the word Oreo necessarily. They'll just say something like, you don't sound black. I could recall many times being called an Oreo, but a couple months ago, I was talking with my friend Gabby, who is also black. We were at school having a conversation, but she stopped and was like, you're such an Oreo. I wasn't sure how to respond to that. I just kind of brushed it off and continued the conversation like she didn't say it, but I was just confused. It's like people don't understand that there's more than one type of black person. We don't all act and or talk the same. I guess one of the benefits of being an Oreo is that white people think that I sound more intelligent. There are positives to coming off more white in all aspects, not just speaking. There's actually research that people who send in resumes with black-sounding names like... Jawan, Jaquees. Yeah, names like that, that they are less likely to get called in for an interview. It makes me sad that people perceiving me as a race other than my own can be a positive, but it's true. Now, Taylor and I don't necessarily think it's hurtful, but at the same time, I would say it's more subtle stereotyping. Someone asked me the other day, like, we were trying to plan a vacation together, and they're like, yeah, but I should let you know that the place that I'm thinking about going, everybody's white. Mm-mm. Everybody's, Mm-mm-mm. there's, Mark, can you let me finish? Everybody's white, but all the workers are mainly black. But I mean, I told her I'm kind of used to it at this point. I don't know. Which probably factored into 
me becoming an Oreo. So basically, what we're trying to say is calling someone an Oreo is maybe not offensive to them individually, but it's still offensive to the black race as a whole. Because speaking properly doesn't make me or Taylor or anyone white. And neither does listening to music that isn't rap or R&B or wearing preppy clothes. Identity is more complicated than skin tone. So So stop stop defining defining me by my my skin skin color. color. For Dayton Youth Radio at the Miami Valley School, this is Mark Williams. This is Taylor Felder. I'm pulling my way. That was a story entitled Black Enough, written and produced by Mark Williams and Taylor Felder of the Miami Valley School. Special thanks to their teacher, Lindsay Cummings. To hear more from this series, visit us on WYSL.org or subscribe to the iTunes podcast. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Project Coordinator, Basim Blunt. This story originally aired in 2017. Today, Mark and Taylor are both sophomores at Butler University. Mark is studying finance and marketing, and Taylor is studying strategic communications. You can find more Dayton Youth Radio on our website at wyso.org. In Vietnam, the war was fought in the air, in the jungle, and in tunnels. Some soldiers were assigned to administrative duties, and they too were caught up in combat. Today on Veterans Voices, Army veteran Norm Shrine of Kettering remembers his year in Vietnam. Well, so I was born in Toledo, Ohio in 1946. And then our family moved down here when I was nine months old. So the rest of my childhood growing up was growing up in the Dayton, Ohio area. I went to Wright State University, which is right uh, here in Dayton, and I went to the very first semester that university ever had and eventually was placed on academic probation. And when that happened, uh, the Army thought that I was a good candidate. And I decided that I didn't want to take my chances on what the Army might pick for me to do. 
again, we were in the Vietnam era. You know, there were a lot of people being killed and whatnot, and I didn't have a desire to be one of those statistics. So I went down and I was able to enlist in the Army, which means that I would be in there for three years. Uh, but I could pick what I wanted to do. But I thought the easiest job, because I could type well, would be a personnel specialist. So that's how I joined the Army as a personnel specialist. It was right during, uh, I arrived in Vietnam during the very first Tet Offensive. Flew into uh, Cameron Bay, and from Cameron Bay, did a little hopscotch on these little transport planes they had to Da Nang, which is where I, I spent uh, the remainder of my time in Vietnam. Even though we weren't on the front lines, it didn't make any difference there because the Da Nang Air Base was right across the street from us. And so we would get these rocket attacks coming in. They would have the sirens going off uh, to warn us, you know, and most of the time we could get out in the bunker while the rockets were going on. Sometimes they were shooting mortars at us. It hit close enough that you could hear the dirt hitting the roof. And I remember laying on that concrete floor under my bunk. You could hear a couple guys crying, you know, save me. Or Nobody was injured, but, I mean, the guys were scared, okay? Uh, before I got there, they had one actually went through a roof of one of the barracks and killed several guys there. So had that or had guys uh, had a guy stand outside my window who was really stressed out and committed suicide outside my window with, with his M14 rifle. And I was able to sleep right through it, and I never heard it. Uh, like I said, the tour in Vietnam was supposed to be a year. I think mine was maybe a couple of weeks short of uh, a full year. So left uh, Da Nang, flew back down to Cameron Bay, basically hung around there for a couple of days until they had a flight back to the, the U.S. They gave us <laughs> brand-new uniforms. Now, even though we were leaving the Army, they gave us brand-new uh, suit and tie and, and coat and whatnot uh, with all the badges and whatever that we had earned. Um, and... Uh, gave us orders to put us on a plane to uh, send us home. And so they put us on this big plane. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a 747. I don't, it was a big plane, and it was a commercial plane. So we all got on board the plane, and then one thing I remember uh, is after that plane left the runway and the wheels were up, you hear this big cheer come up from all the guys on the plane. That was Army veteran Norm Shrine. He shared his story at WYSO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WYSO is presented by Wright Pat Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. This story was edited by Tom Holloway and Will Davis. I'm Jerry Kenny. We've got more WISO Weekend coming your way. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Tom Hanks. You probably heard that your old car can help this public radio station, but do you know how it works? Well, every month they take the donated cars and force all of your public radio hosts to compete in a no-holds-barred demolition derby. It's their way of eliminating the weak. So if you want to make sure only the toughest public radio interviewers handle the news on this station, donate your car today. Thank you. Learn more about donating your vehicle at WYSO.org. Nikki Dakota here asking, how well do you know your WISO DJs? 
I'm Dante Bedingfield. 3J, the DJ. I'm Juliet Frumholt. I'm Todd Widener. This is Rev Cool. Radio Basin. This is Devin. You'll hear all your bluegrass favorites. I'm Jennifer Berman. This is Cindy Funk. I'm Eric Henry. I'm Evan Miller, inviting you to the outside. Dive in to Wiseau's wide world of music. Find these local hosts and their hand-picked playlists at wiseau.org. Jackson, Mississippi guitarist Eddie Cott talks about his gospel roots and mission to bring blues to the world. Then Texas traveling songman guitarist Willis Allen Ramsey in a live set from New Orleans' Chicky Wawa Club. It's blues for home and highways on American Roots from PRX. Saturday night at 10 and Sunday evening at 6 on 91.3 WYSO. Welcome back to the program. I'm Jerry Kenny. People have been using axes for centuries as both tools and weapons. Now people can head to Beaver Creek to use axes for a lighter purpose by throwing them for fun. Community Voices producer Lauren Shows has the story. Hey. Someone just hit their target at Wild Axe, an axe-throwing bar in Beaver Creek. Wild Axe opened this summer and is one of the newest in a spate of such bars that's popped up over the last several years. Each of Wild Axe's 11 throwing lanes ends in a large wooden target, where guests can practice hitting their marks during hour-long sessions. As they do so, they can have beer, wine, and liquor. It may seem like a misstep to combine alcohol and weaponry, but co-owner Daniel Hewitt says that each 15-foot lane is reinforced with steel cages on each side to protect from errant throws. And he says that guests have been diligent about following safety rules so far. I think people know that this is kind of like a gun range. Like, we're not going to tolerate any nonsense, so to speak. And we say that right in the beginning before they throw. And patrons aren't just turned loose to fling sharp objects around either. Each group is paired with an axe master. And that person is going to show you the techniques of how to throw, walk you through the games, and then help correct your throws and, and guide you through, through the experience. One axe master is store manager Axel. He says that's his on-the-job stage name. Though he is a master of the axe, he says he credits his position at Wild Axe to something other than his axe-throwing prowess. I think it was the beard that got me the job here, honestly, yeah. That, that actually gives him a lot of credibility and Thor-like strength. Axel's 18-inch beard is aesthetically consistent with Wild Axe's rugged interior design, which is dominated by dark-stained wood and steel, and, of course, those large wooden targets. Axel says that one of the bar's largest overhead costs is the replacement of the targets, which, unlike your standard bar dartboard, tend to get destroyed pretty quickly. We can replace certain boards um, probably about four or five times a week. As axe-throwing bars have continued to open across the country, millennials have been cited, and occasionally blamed, by news outlets as being the chief clientele because the bars are unusual, a little dangerous, and eminently Instagrammable. Axel says Wild Axe does get its fair share of millennials through the door, but the guests tend to be pretty varied in age. You know, you have to be at least 15 to throw here with a parent and guardian, so we get 15, 16-year-old birthday parties. I've also had... 85-year-old couples come in and throw. I definitely think it's, it's quite empowering, no matter who you are. Axel was trained to throw by Daniel, as all the bars axe masters have been. Daniel says he visited seven axe-throwing bars in Ohio and nearby states before embarking on his own. And it was at those bars that Daniel himself learned how to properly throw an axe. Well, there and... Good old internet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Axel says the Axe Masters spend a lot of their off hours in the shop, perfecting their craft, and, of course, having a few drinks. Daniel and Axel played a round of a game called Blue Dot, where players in opposing <laughs> lanes compete to see who can be the first to score two hits on the target's Blue Dot. All right, All right so let's do it. Oh, I get it? No. Oh, it's, it's sliced. It's sliced. Hey! All right, one, zero, good guys. The two invited me to try my hand at throwing as well. I had to sign a waiver, as all players do, and they lent me a pair of closed-toed shoes. Axel gave me some quick pointers on one-handed throwing, essential as I was also holding a microphone. Fully extended out in front of you. Okay. And so that is the key to the one-handed throw there, is the big lean-in and following through with your throw to keep the arm moving the whole time. It took a few tries for me to even get the axe to stick in the board, but on my fifth try. Try one more time. Oh, I finally did it! Yay! <laughs> Daniel and Axel say that over and above the success of the business, they're both devoted to axe throwing because it's fun. And it sure beats the sedentary quality of a lot of jobs. I've just generally been a much happier person since this place has opened. And yeah, that's that's a big reason why I stay after work and, and hang out and get here a little bit early and throw and all that. Kinda kinda keeps me chipper. So you can't you can't complain. We have beer, wine, liquor, axes. I mean it's I think it's all here. For WYSO's Culture Couch, I'm Lauren Shouse. Culture Couch is made possible by a generous grant from the Ohio Arts Council and, like many stories you hear on WISO Weekend, produced at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WISO. Still a little construction going on here. In January, a new health care facility opened in Centerville that focuses on individualized supportive care services to people living with chronic illness. On a recent tour of the 36,000-square-foot facility called Pure Healthcare, President Anthony Evans told me their mission includes maximizing their clients' quality of life and empowering them to thrive and succeed. Uh, a lot of factors impact people's ability to age in place and stay at home where they want to be when they're facing chronic conditions. We just want to give them more tools and better tools to really be more proactive and look upstream, as it were, and kind of engage them earlier in the disease process and give them better tools and interventions in the community. Joining us on the tour was Dr. Shirag Patel, Chief Medical Officer for Pure Healthcare, who described how their role is to bridge the gap in service that patients can experience when they seek long-term chronic pain management. He also said the palliative care facility is an offshoot of hospice. So this facility is just an evolution of that, is again bringing in even more talent and even more holistic principles to to be able to create a plan of care for the folks that we serve, you know, to make sure that every aspect of what they consider to be burdensome is addressed. You know, so we still have very robust palliative uh, physical services, which is what I do, you know, symptom management, pain, nausea, anxiety, you know, shortness of breath, uh, with again, a a stronger behavioral program. So we can do a lot more uh, group counseling, pharmacology, those type of things to help support a person when they have clinical depression. 
depression or anxiety. You know, we're adding other features, as I'll show you as we walk through. You know, a person who has functional decline because of their chronic illness, people get weaker, get more tired, get more disabled. You know, how can we help support that person so they can stay independent and mobile, to stay home and stay functional? You say you saw the need for uh, an organization like this stemming from hospice care. Can you describe some of the situations that were taking place that made it a challenge for hospice? Hospice is great. You know, that's our heritage and always will be a part of our foundation. But as we have learned and people realize that palliative medicine is not hospice medicine. So, I mean, we, you know, use the same principles, which are holistic, multidisciplinary, you know, team engagement. But, you know, folks are getting afraid of that word, right? People will Google palliative and see all kinds of hospice stuff. And again, I don't, I don't, I'm not threatened by that, but a lot of the folks in the community are. So we felt that it was time to, you know, to, to push a little bit further away from, from our, our heritage. Again, never forgetting about who we are, but understanding that, you know, in order to serve and to build a model of care that's going to be as comprehensive as we uh, you know, plan to be, you know, we have to, you have to create some separation. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I will never forget, you know, the things I've learned as a hospice, you know, clinician, but as a palliativist, as a population health, you know, individual, I think we can serve more and help, you know, fill in some gaps, you know, that this community and many communities across the country have. With this new approach to healthcare, are there any challenges with regard to healthcare coverage for the services you're providing? The exciting thing about House Bill 286 is it allows that inpatient palliative care to occur. So we think it's a great tool that clinicians haven't had until now, but we haven't really described a payment or reimbursement structure for it yet in the state of Ohio. So that's something we're actively working with payers today to talk about how we could utilize the service for them to improve outcomes and, again, uh, provide community-based support. So um, still to be determined how we cover some of this. It could be within a population model where we assume some risk or shared savings for a population that we're able to engage and help navigate the system and reduce costs. So a lot of dynamics with that, but uh, but again, have had some great conversations with payers about models upcoming that we could be used to be reimbursed the, the service. Both of you mentioned the House bill. Can you give me a, an overview of that? Sure. And what it allows is um, for hospice licensed facilities to provide inpatient palliative care to non-hospice patients. So really it allows a framework for, of inpatient care for chronic conditions and symptom management, which again really hasn't been defined. It's a brand new tool for clinicians and the state of Ohio is really at the forefront of kind of defining that from a regulatory standpoint. Um, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of factors that impact an individual and the family's ability to, to age in place in the community. And one of those is, is a term that we use a lot, which is called social determinants of health. And why we emphasize this being a community-based care management model is we, we really need to do a better job as a health system to, to assess those, um, those social determinants. These are things like access to healthy food, transportation, formal and informal supports. There's a lot of factors that impact, again, an, an, an individual's ability to, to, to remain in, in in the community. So, so we want to make sure that we're, uh, again, very comprehensive and holistic in the model as we build that longitudinal care plan, assess not just medical needs, but also behavioral health needs, counseling needs, nutritional needs, um, uh, you know, functional needs, really across the continuum of care for individuals. Pure Healthcare President Anthony Evans and Dr. Shirag Patel, Chief Medical Officer on a tour of their new facility in Centerville. The building's decor and its amenities are designed to make people suffering from chronic illness as comfortable as possible. It features a small spa, large comfortable rooms for the clients who may stay there, and other amenities like a full kitchen, dining area, and a small bistro. Two of the three floors are still under construction, but Pure Healthcare is expected to be fully operational this spring. You can find out more about them at purehealthcare.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is Why So Weekend.
This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac for the third week of late winter. The third week of the lambing and kidding moon and the third week of the sun in Aquarius. Even as cold breaks up the groundhog day thaw, signs appear of the broader scope of the season, reminders of what to watch for and maybe what to do. When the first fly gets in your house on a warm late winter day, then opossums and skunks wander the back roads at night. When the red tips of peonies push out just a little from the ground, then blue jays are courting and wild turkeys are gathering in flocks. When red-winged blackbirds come to build their nests, then the maple sap should already be running. When the first snowdrop foliage emerges through the snow, then it's time to sprout cabbages, kale, and collards under lights. When pale winter ladybugs emerge in the warmth of sunny windowsills in the north, then yellow jessamine is blooming along the Gulf Coast, and avocados and papayas are ripening far in the south. When the first knuckles of rhubarb emerge from the ground, then it's time to plant onion sets directly in the soil and seed cold frames with spinach, radishes, and lettuce. When sparrows are courting, then that's a favorable time to cut branches of forsythia for forcing indoors. And when small brown moths appear on warmer afternoons, then ducks are looking for nesting sites and salamanders mate at night in the slime. This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac. I'll be back again next week with notes for the final week of late winter. In the meantime, even though the weather may be cold, the signs are telling us there's a lot to do and see. Bill Felker contributes to newspapers nationwide, including the Yellow Springs News. Bill resides in Yellow Springs. Poor Will's Almanac is also available as a podcast at WYSO.org. That's it for this edition of YSO Weekend on 91.3 WYSO. Building a more informed community with independent news and storytelling. We'll be back next Sunday morning at 10. Now on YSO, it's Vic McCunis with The Book Nook.
Are you current? Are you with it? Are you at the front of the line of what is? The leading edge of now holding the reins of what will be? Do you get it? Are you up for it? Down with it? In the news? On the beat? You can be. How, you ask? Become a sustaining member of WYSO. Do it now. Not that now. This now. You won't just be recent. You won't just be fresh. Not just up to the minute. You'll be current. You will be what's happening. It is never too late to get up to date. Become a sustaining member of WYSO. Get current. And keep it that way. At WYSO.org. Hi, I'm Eric Henry, local musician, blues fan, and host of the newest program here on WYSO, The Blues Revival. Meet me Sunday afternoons for a journey through time, blues time. Like the old cats say, if you don't dig the blues, you gotta have a hole in your soul. Nobody wants that. Now I know that your love is real. Maybe you start your day with coffee. Or at the gym. No matter how or when your day begins, start it with Morning Edition from NPR News. A unique mix of national, global, and local stories, now available on demand. Weekdays from 7 to 3. Just say, Alexa, play Morning Edition. Morning Edition, on your schedule, from NPR News. That's Morning Edition from WYSO.